Let's open in prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, we desire more than anything else, I desire more than anything else, that Christ would be magnified, that he would be lifted up, that he would be the object of our focus, of our affection, of our hearts, cry that it would be Christ. Lord, we come today as a people from many different places. Even though we live in the same town near, near Janesville or in Janesville, Lord, we have separate lives with separate issues, separate problems, separate sicknesses, separate uh, trials. And yet we come together under the headship of Christ. I pray now, though, that you would unite us in Jesus with one another. That whatever we bring with us, that you would allow us to lay it before you. Whatever anxieties, whatever um, trials, that we could lay them at your feet. That you indeed would quiet our hearts and that we would listen to you as our Savior. We would look to you for hope and for help. Father, we want more than anything to be people who see and savor Jesus Christ. So whatever it is that clamors in our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would quiet that clamoring and allow Christ to be the cry of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a book series uh, that I have read to all three of my kids called The Wilder King uh, Trilogy by Jonathan Rogers. And I've actually read it multiple times to the kids. And it is a story, if you're not familiar with it, uh, that parallels the life of David of Israel. It starts with he's a, a little shepherd boy, uh, not really little, but a shepherd boy. And the series then chronicles his adventures as he grows up into becoming the king that God wants him to be, the man that God has called him to be. And in that first book, uh, he is confronted, while well, we come into uh, the, the battle with the giant. Right? The two armies are together, and the giant has said that if someone would face him one-on-one -on -one in battle, that, that they could claim all the victory. But in the book, what I really like is that uh, you get a sense of what it might have been like to be a soldier in the army. When we read that story, I think rightly we think about David and what it must have been like to be David. But what was it like to be in that army, hearing the taunts of the giant day by day, challenging someone to face him in one-on-one -on -one combat? Right? The circumstances were overwhelming, and, and not one hero stepped forward to fight the giant on behalf of God's people until David came. Ultimately, David came forward and, and defeated the giant. We know that the story of David and Goliath. And David trusted in the power and sufficiency that only comes from God. He didn't look to himself. He looked to God in a way that no one else had thought to do. That story uh, and the faith that is seen there, I think we see that uh, a similar trust displayed by Christ in our passage this morning. And it may be that the disciples and the crowd or maybe a little bit more like the people of Israel uh, in that army. The passage that we're looking at is, is familiar, I'm sure, to all of us. It's a, a familiar story, uh, the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a significant miracle, and then it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. As we look at John's account this morning, it's my hope that we will see the character of who Jesus is as a Savior, as God's promised Messiah. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. Before we jump into the text itself, 
as I always do, I like to do, is to put chapter 6 into context. And if you remember, just a few months ago, I preached uh, from John chapter 5. And uh, at the beginning of 5, if you just turn back over the page, we see that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. Right? And then he'd made statements that upset the Jewish leaders because he referred to God as his father, his father. The implication was that Jesus would, was making himself equal to God. Jesus then said that he could do nothing on his own accord, but only what he saw his father doing. So then starting in verse 43, we read, Jesus says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so the focus then Jesus puts is on Moses. And I think that's important for us to realize as we come into chapter 6. That word that they don't believe Moses, it's hard for us to probably appreciate how astonishing those words might have sounded to a first century Jew. Because we know, if we know our Old Testament, that Moses was one of the most important men of faith. God had used Moses to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And it was Moses who God used to boldly confront Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go from slavery. God then used Moses to lead the people miraculously across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when they were in the wilderness, it was Moses who led them for 40 years. When there was no source of food in the wilderness, it was Moses that God used to deliver the people manna day by day. For that matter, we could say it's true that, that God had spoken to Moses face to face and through him communicated all of God's laws, the sacrificial system, and the first five books of the Old Testament scripture. Moses was an incredibly important person to the, Jew, to the Jewish people. But as Jesus points out, Moses wrote about the coming Messiah. God had promised to send a savior to rescue God's people. And in the passage that was read uh, earlier by Barry in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, uh, it says that the Lord told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he, sp uh, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So these Old Testament passages spoke of Jesus, because Jesus was sent by God. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus performs a miracle of great magnitude that highlights that he is indeed God's promised Savior. So not only does he feed the people, but Jesus tells them, and we won't get to this this week, but he tells them in verse 41 that he himself is the bread of life, that he came down from heaven, that was sent down from heaven. But in our passage this morning, I want us to look at four characteristics. That Jesus is the bread of life who saves and sustains God's people. And as God's Savior, we see first that he knows our need. He knows our need. So John opens uh, up chapter 6, 
in our passage by letting us know that some time has passed since the events of chapter 5. Unless we think that this is like a day later, this might have, might have been up to six months later based on the Jewish calendar of festivals. Jesus and his disciples had been very busy during that time with ministry, and now they had gone away to be alone. We learn from Mark's account in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus took his disciples away to a desolate place to be by themselves and rest because things had gotten so busy that they had not even had time to eat. And so they crossed the Sea of Galilee, and we see in verse 3 that Jesus went up on the mountain or into the mountain uh, country, and there he sat down with his disciples, hoping for a spiritual retreat, hoping for time to relax, hoping for time to be together without the press of people. But, as we see in our text, that there would be no rest, there would be no quiet. We read in verse 2, that a large crowd was following Jesus because they had seen, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So over these past months, Jesus had built such a reputation that the people wanted more. And if we think about it, think about what they did, right? What those people did. They, they heard that Jesus was going somewhere and they just left. It's astonishing that all of these people were so eager to be with Jesus that they left home and were willing to follow him to a remote desert location, seemingly without even provisions, to spend the night in the desert just because they wanted to hear what he had to say. Right? We could say that their enthusiasm may have been heightened by the fact that the feast of Passover was at hand, and Passover was significant, a significant time for the people of God. Right? It was an annual feast meant to remind the people of God how he had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. It also seems, based on the gospel accounts and other writings, that this was also a time of heightened anticipation of the coming day when God would send that Savior. So there was, people were on the lookout for a Messiah, and people saw Jesus and wondered, and so they followed him. They followed him even into the desert. Even there, it raises a question for us, I think. What kind of discomforts would we endure for the sake of being near to Christ? And it's not the main point of the text, but we should ask that question. In his commentary from the 1500s, John Calvin writes this, and he could write it today. So much the less excusable is our indifference, or rather our sloth, when we are so far from preferring the heavenly doctrine to the gnawing of hunger that the slightest interruptions immediately lead us away from meditation on the heavenly life. Rarely does it happen that Christ finds us free and disengaged from the entanglements of this world. So far is every one of us from being ready to follow him to a desert mountain that scarcely one in ten can endure to receive him even when he presents himself at home in the midst of comforts. And what about us in the midst of our own comforts? Right? Are we willing to follow Jesus into the desert? Are we willing to seek out Christ even in the midst of our own comfortable homes? Right? It challenges us to consider what lengths we're willing to go to in order to spend time with Jesus. Right? Do we treasure Christ enough to choose him over the comforts of this world? I don't think we really probably have to look too much further than our own pursuit of God's word. Whether we're reading it for ourselves or participating in a Bible study, 
And as believers, I think if we neglect spending time with God through his word and in prayer, we should be willing to ask ourselves what it is that's keeping us from seeking out Christ's teaching, from seeking out being with him. The good news is, though, that uh, as God's Savior, Jesus doesn't simply leave us to defend, uh, to defend fend for ourselves. Right? He knows our need. He knows our weakness. He knows our tendency uh, to not come to him. In verse 5, John tells us that Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Right? Jesus knew their need. He, didn't, uh, he knew that they were in a desolate place and that they were without sufficient nourishment. But unlike what we, what we read in, happened in the wilderness, he didn't wait for the people to cry out. He didn't wait for them to ask. As they were approaching, he'd already made his plans to meet their physical needs. As God's Savior, Jesus knows our needs. He knows that our greatest need uh, is a spiritual need for his grace to be poured out in forgiving of our sins. The familiar passage of Ephesians 2 tells us that when we were dead in our sins, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he poured out, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. This is by grace you have been saved. He knows our greatest need is for forgiveness of our sins. But also, he knows uh, that we have physical needs. We see in, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, Jesus teaching that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that God will provide us with what we do need. That includes physical things. It's for this reason that Jesus encourages his followers to not be anxious over the things that we need. God cares for those who give themselves to pursuing him. There's joyful freedom knowing that Jesus is a loving Savior who knows us and knows our needs. And as God's children, we can pursue Christ and trust him that if we need something, he knows about it. It doesn't mean he always meets our needs, not at least in the ways that we would expect. In fact, in many times, God will use our need to challenge us and grow us in our own faith. And that brings us to our second point. As God's Savior, Jesus knows our need and challenges our faith through our need. We come back to the question that Jesus posed to Philip. He says, where will we buy bread so, that these, may people, so these people may eat? Right? During that time, it was not uncommon for uh, teachers to quiz their disciples. We're not told why he singled out Philip specifically. The reason could be that Philip, along with Andrew and Peter, were from Bethsaida, which may have been the closest town uh, that they were near to. And so maybe he would be the most familiar with the area. We're not explicitly told that. But what we are told is that Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. Here was an opportunity to see how the disciples would assess the situation and solve the problem that Jesus set before them. And here's a, an opportunity for them to apply all that they had been learning as they were with Jesus from his teachings and from his example. Philip's response was extremely practical. 
Philip did a little bit of math, right? And he, he said, answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. A denarii, if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, is a day's wage for a laborer. It's approximately eight months worth of wages. Think about that. However much you make. Imagine taking eight months of that just to feed one crowd that is coming over the hill. That's a lot. John tells us that there were 5,000 men in number, but that, that, no, that word for men is actually pretty specific. And so all the commentators agree that, that this would not have included women and children who were present. And so the number was likely closer to 10,000, 15, or even 20,000 people present. In other words, Philip was saying that they were not wealthy enough to feed all of these people. And even if they had a whole truckload of money, it wouldn't be enough to really satisfy everybody. Verse 8, we see that one of the, the other disciples, Andrew, also from Bethsaida, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? When we think of barley loaves, with the loaves and fishes, uh, the barley loaves were not like big, crusty loaves of bread that we might think of. It's probably closer to what we think of as, as crackers, maybe with dried fish on the side. Barley loaves were, were inexpensive. They were, what, they were what the poor people ate. They were not very impressive, just a humble meal to feed a boy. Nothing to feed 5,000, 10,000, 20. But the response from both disciples, I think it's reasonable, right? Jesus asked, how, where are we going to find bread for this? Where are we going to buy bread for all of these people to eat? But the response from both disciples reveals that they didn't see any way that these people could be fed. Even at a great expense, they couldn't provide for this multitude. In fact, what we read in the other gospel accounts, Mark in particular, was that the disciples suggested that Jesus send the people away to the surrounding villages and they could buy their own food, spread them out, right? There might be food enough and they could take care of it themselves. But that's not what Jesus wanted to do. The need provided an opportunity to reveal what the disciples believed about who Jesus truly is. They had seen Jesus turn water into wine. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd heard his teaching. But how did all of that relate to feeding this crowd? Barry also read from us from 2 Kings chapter 4, how through Elijah, God caused 20 barley loaves to feed 100 soldiers. And we know that in the wilderness, that God fed his people with manna. So the question was, who was Jesus? Right? Could Jesus perform miracles as great as Elijah or Moses? Was Jesus even greater? When a need comes up in your own life, where do you turn? Right? Where do you place your trust? Is it in your ability to pay for whatever re repair or expense comes up? And if the need seems too great, right, do you immediately just reject it over, uh, outright? Or do you turn to God and ask him for help, for wisdom and for guidance? It isn't wrong. I don't think it was wrong for them to calculate the cost. And it isn't wrong for us to consider the cost as we face needs that come into our lives. But, 
But even when we can afford the cost of an issue that comes up, a problem that comes our way, should we not still turn to the Lord for wisdom? Perhaps even closer maybe to the context of our passage is when someone else has a need that seems beyond our ability to help. Right? Those needs become opportunities for us to turn to the Lord and ask for his wisdom and provision. Right? Isn't that what David did? Right? David was confronted with the giant and so he turned to the Lord. He didn't trust in his own power. In some ways, as we look at the disciples, it's it's almost laughable that the disciples didn't just immediately turn to Jesus with all that they had seen and say something like, I don't know, Jesus, where we're going to buy bread, but I bet you can do something. Will you provide for them and and show me what I can do? I think that's how we can respond to the needs that come up in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We might not be able to meet the needs, but we can pray and ask God to meet the need. We may not feel adequate uh, to, to meet the need, but we can ask God for wisdom to know how he would have us respond. It may be that he, God answers the prayer in a way that we didn't think of. It may also be that God leads us to humbly offer our meager barley loaves and fish. Even in our weakness, God can use us. We may not feel adequate to help but we should consider how God might be using each of us using each, and using each need that he places in our lives as opportunities for us to place our trust in God in real-world application. As God's Savior, Jesus knows our need, right? And he challenges our faith through the needs that he places in our lives. He also meets our need, and that's the next point that we look at here. So he knows our need, he challenges our faith through our need, and he's able to meet our need. Verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. So there's much grass in the place, and so the people sat down, about 5,000 in number. So even if the disciples got it wrong in the first place, even though they didn't seem to rightly understand or attribute the proper authority to or power to Jesus, they were still willing to follow his instructions as he instructed them to, to have the people sit down in the grass. Right? They didn't fully understand enough to anticipate what Jesus was going to do, but they did trust him enough to follow what he commanded. So Jesus then took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So we see Jesus then, as the feast is Before it's handed out, Jesus gives thanks to God, acknowledging that God alone is the one who provides us with all that we need. It was Jesus who said that he would only do what he saw the Father doing. It was Jesus who said that the Father had sent him, and so it was right for him to give thanks to the Father. Jesus didn't bless the bread and suddenly it magically multiplied. Jesus was giving thanks to God for the provision that he, he had given. And then he distributes the bread through the disciples. Right, I've wondered, right, how, uh, but we really don't know exactly how the miracle took place. Right? Did the fish and the bread multiply first and then it was handed out? Or did it multiply as it was being passed out? And the reason we don't know is because it doesn't matter to what we, our understanding of the passage 
but it, it, it can't help but go through our minds, I think. But what is clear is that Jesus was the one who performed the miraculous sign. And it was greater in magnitude than Elisha. And unlike the manna that God had provided in the wilderness, everyone had their fill and there was actually more left over than when they had started. As God's Savior, Jesus knows our need and he meets our need. It is right for us to respond to him with thanksgiving to all that he gives to us. As God's Son, Jesus has infinite power and authority. In Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He does not simply meet our need, but he is able to meet our needs out of the overflow of his abundance. Sometimes I think we, we believe or we act as though that we believe that God probably doesn't have enough resources to meet the needs that we have, whatever they are. And yet that's not the case. That's out of his overflow of abundance that God can meet any need. This doesn't mean that Jesus gives Christians everything that they want. Right? This isn't the prosperity gospel. But it also, it also doesn't mean that believers will never go hungry. We can trust that he gives us what we truly need. Even here, Jesus didn't deliver a gourmet meal, but he did provide enough for each person to receive their fill. As Christians, we're not promised a life without trouble, but we can trust that as we read in 2 Peter 1.3, that God will meet our needs and provide us with everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus who called us to his own glory and excellence. Right, so when we have needs, we ought to take them before the Lord. We ought to tell him what they are. We ought to not be afraid that somehow he doesn't have enough or that he is withholding it. Right, it may be that, that what he's desiring of us is that we would go to him, that we would bow down to him and show that our trust is in him and not our own resources. Through each, of these, uh, through each of the signs that are recorded throughout the Gospels, we learn something about Jesus. Right? As, as a Savior, as God's Savior, Jesus knows our need. He challenges our faith through our need. He's able to meet our need. And finally, he reveals himself. He reveals himself. Ultimately, as God's Savior, we see that Jesus reveals himself to us. Through his teaching, through the healing of the sick, through the miraculous signs, they all point to the fact that Jesus is God's Son, the promised Messiah, the Savior of God's people. Jesus was not merely providing food for the people. He was showing them who he is. The greatest gift from God is not the blessings that he gives, not the bread itself, but the, that he, the giver, gives himself. But listen to the response that we see the people have in verse 14. When the people saw the signs or the sign that, uh, that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. As I said, it is Passover and the people were looking uh, for a rescuer and Jesus seemed to fit the description. Right? He could heal the sick, he could provide them with food. So the people decided they were going to make Jesus their king even if they had to take him by force. And so Jesus responded in verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He, he didn't let them make him king on their terms. The people were partially correct, 
Right? Jesus was and is indeed the prophet whom God had sent into the world that Moses had spoken of. He's the one who Moses, uh, who God, the Lord told Moses about in Deuteronomy 18, 18, when he said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak, them, uh, speak to them all that I command him. Later in John chapter 6, we see that these same people, although they were willing to make him their king here, they were not willing to follow him. They were not willing to submit to all that he had to say. Ultimately, they were not willing to, to follow the second part of that passage from Deuteronomy 18, where God continued by saying, and this is verse Deuteronomy 18, 19, he said, And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The people were looking for a rescuer, right? They were looking for a, a rescuer who would save them from the tyranny of the uh, the government over them. But they were looking for the wrong kind of rescuer. They wanted a king who would free them from the tyranny and the oppression of a corrupt Roman government. But they didn't want to submit to the authority of Jesus. They wanted him to make their life easier. Right? They saw power. They saw a meal ticket. And so they wanted to put Jesus out in front to get what they wanted they weren't interested in who Jesus was and in submitting to who he was. Not when he challenged them or went against what they wanted. Jesus came to bring life, not, not political freedom. We read in John 6, 35, that Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus wasn't acting on their, interested in acting on their approval. Jesus didn't come to be crowned an earthly king. That wasn't God's agenda. Even today, we need to accept Jesus on his own terms. Right? This is a challenge for the world around us, right? A world which is not really interested in, in spiritual rescue, right? but maybe preoccupied with meeting present material needs. Right? Many people will come to Jesus in the hopes that he will give them what they want. This can also be a challenge to the church because we too can be preoccupied with present material concerns, whether it be power, our reputation, our physical well-being, or the amount of our savings. But we don't come to Jesus to get our needs, our needs met. We worship Jesus because he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all our praise and honor and affection. As our Savior, Jesus pursues us for our good. By dying on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for, our, for the sins of all who trust in him, for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus knows our need and is able to meet our need, both here and in eternity. All that the Father has given him will be saved. None will be lost. Right? In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus not only shows who he is, but he also, in a way, invites us to come and follow him to come and feast upon him. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10, 45, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's no end to God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lamentations tells us that, that his mercies are new every morning, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and, and his mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Just like the abundance of bread, Jesus provides an abundance of grace. There's no need that is too great that Jesus cannot meet. And there's no sin that's so heinous that Christ's blood cannot atone for it. And so what we find here in this living parable, right, this enacted parable uh, that Jesus performed, this sign, was what kind of a Savior he truly is. Right? And we see that he's a Savior who knows our need. And he challenges our faith through our need, that he's able to meet our need. He reveals himself and then ultimately that he gives himself to us so that we might be with him for eternity. This is the Jesus who feeds us by his word. This is the Jesus who meets us today. Uh, And so I want to pray that he would indeed be the affection and desire of our hearts. Father, we, we truly want Christ to be made much of in our hearts and in our minds. We want to see him for who he truly is. Father, I pray that you would protect us from the wants of this world. Protect us from seeing only uh, to our temporal needs and wants. Help us to see who you are. Help us to, to live our lives in such a way that we're willing to give of ourselves to pursue you and to trust that in giving ourselves that you will indeed feed us, that you will uh, care for us. Father, you are a God and Jesus is a Savior who has withheld no good thing from us. So we thank you, Father, for your generosity. We thank you for life. And we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.